while we were called background singers, we weren't really background singers because we would always be up front with Sylvester. That's Martha Wash, one half of Two Tons of Fun, along with Isora Rhodes. I love the fact that Sylvester didn't treat Martha and Isora like typical background singers. If you listen to the way his tracks are engineered and mixed, their vocals are right up front, as if they were co-lead singers. At shows, Sylvester, Martha, and Isora stood in a single line across the stage. It was part of Sylvester's vision of musical democracy. Everybody stood together and sang together, and there was no hierarchy. But in the fall of 1979, something changed. Harvey was the one that said that we should do a album. And I said, okay, sounds cool. Producer Harvey Fuqua saw that the Two Tons had potential as a solo act. Sylvester had always believed in their talents. He'd always said so. But now they were on the verge of becoming stars in their own right. At the beginning of his career, he had lost the Pointer Sisters, and now they were bigger stars than he was. Could Sylvester stay on top without the two tons of fun? This is Sound Barrier, a show about artists who break new ground in music and culture. I'm Jason King, musician, journalist, and chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at New York University. This season, it's the story of an innovative musical artist of the 70s and 80s, and an icon of queer representation in popular culture, Sylvester. This is episode six, Stormy Weather Girls. He was upset that Harvey Fuqua wanted to record Two Tons of Fun. I guess he thought he was losing his background singers and all this other kind of stuff, you know. The trouble for Sylvester started, as it often did, with producer Harvey Fuqua. Harvey had a great ear for talent. After all, he'd known that Sylvester was destined to be a star from the moment he heard him perform at the Elephant Walk on Castro Street. With the Two Tons, Harvey saw his next ticket to ride a shiny new commercial opportunity. It wasn't just Martha and Isora either. It was basically every one of Sylvester's collaborators making a record without him. Keyboardist Eric Robinson had written Sylvester's hit Dance Disco Heat, which won the 1978 Grammy for Disco Single of the Year. And now he was writing most of the songs for the Two Tons record. Sylvester's band leader, James Wirick joined the Martha and Isora sessions playing guitar. Harvey Fuqua produced the record. Sylvester might have had mixed feelings, but he still contributed to the album. He and Harvey Fuqua co-wrote a ballad for Martha Wash, Taking Away Your Space. You think that I don't understand Taking Away Your Space is a bluesy slow jam about two lovers who've fallen out of sync. The track builds and builds to a series of scorching emotional crescendos. Just a little, just a little, 
if the tracks are already laid down, I can get a feel for what the music sounds like and just feel a soulful type of vibe. And up against the music, find a melody. Years ago, NPR Music asked me who I would include on the list of the 50 greatest voices of all time. I said Martha Wash and cited taking away your space as proof. With better marketing and promotion, Martha could have been a household name in R&B, right alongside the likes of Aretha Franklin, Shaka Khan, Patti LaBelle, and Gladys Knight. For a while, Sylvester and the Two Tons shared billing. A few times we would open for Sylvester and then turn around and sing background for him. And other times we would go out and do our own shows. But this moment of their success, separate from him, it felt like an ending. I think he wasn't necessarily happy that we were moving on. You know, I think he felt like we were <laughs> abandoning him, you know and conspiracy theories flew. You wouldn't believe the things I've heard for the reasons we broke up. Everything from uh, we hated each other, from everything until, um, oh, they're too big and I wasn't big and I wasn't fabulous anymore and they were and all of these things. Filmmaker Stephen Winter. So Harvey kind of put it to Sylvester that Martha and Isora weren't so much leaving as doing a side project. So Sylvester was able to get down with that on a certain level. But when the album hit, and it hit so big, it was clear that they're not going to be able to come back and be his background singers anymore. The formula that Sylvester and Martha and Isora developed together was not going to be replicated, which meant that Sylvester was now in the, in the deep water by himself. Two Tons of Fun, their debut album on Fantasy Records, was released in January 1980. Ebony did a two-page spread with the tons performing, playing pinball, and bowling. New York's alternative weekly, The Village Voice, made them their centerfold. And they were featured on NBC's proto-reality series, Real People. Both Martha and Azora come from San Francisco and have strong backgrounds in gospel music. In fact, they call their singing style disco gospel. Martha and Azora made two albums with Harvey and Fantasy Records. But then, for their third record they got an opportunity to sign with a major label. And so we decided to sign with Columbia Records and move from the West Coast to the East Coast. This was tough news for Sylvester. But when I told Sylvester that I was moving to New York, he begged me not to do it. He did not want me to go. And I just told him, I said, look, I'm just going to New York. I'm not going to the other side of the world. He said, I know, I know. He said, but I'm gonna miss you and you won't be here anymore. It wasn't just the upgrade to a big label that appealed to the two tons. They were fed up with management, Harvey Fuqua and Nancy Pitts. Agreed, it's always been that way with management. We broke up and stopped singing. Background for Sylvester. Because management? Yeah. The other half of Two Tons of Fun, Isora Rhodes. The way they treated us and took all our money. Sylvester was so hurt, but he knew because he had got fucked over too. And I'm the one that clued him about them taking his money. Is there a more shady business than the music business? Stephen Winter. It just seems designed to screw people over. The only way an artist can get a dollar in their hands is if they literally take it from an audience member and put it in their pockets. If they go through any kind of the normal channels that a music business has to offer, there's a hundred hands going for every dollar. 
and that will always lead to tensions. In 1983, Martha and Isora reluctantly recorded a song that would be more successful than anything they'd done before. I say reluctantly because it was a song that was like a hot potato. Nobody wanted to touch it. Paul Jabara invited us to a lunch at his home. We were in Los Angeles at the time. I think we had done some shows down there. Paul Jabara was an actor and a singer. He was in the original cast of Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar on Broadway. He'd been in movies like Midnight Cowboy. Paul was also a formidable songwriter. He wrote Last Dance for Donna Summer. He won the Oscar for Best Song. And he wrote Enough is Enough, the legendary duet between Donna Summer and Barbra Streisand. Paul was kind of a big deal. And after lunch was over, he said, I have something that I want you to hear. And we listened to It's Raining Men. Then he said, I want you to record this song. So this is awkward. The song feels like a joke. It's Raining Men? Come on. And I looked at Isora and I told Paul, I said, you've got to be kidding. He said, no, I want you to record this song. He said, Barbara Streisand had turned it down. Diana Ross turned it down. Cher turned it down. Donna Summer turned it down. They had all turned it down. He said, I need you to record this song. And I said, Paul, but nobody's going to buy this song. He said, it's going to be a hit. And so kind of as an appeasement in a way, a couple of days later, we went into the studio and recorded the song in roughly 90 minutes and said, okay, see you later, Paul. Bye. And that was it. And so Paul was right. It became a hit. It's raining man. Hallelujah, it's raining man. Amen. I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna let myself get It's Raining Men went to number one on the U.S. dance chart and crossed over to the pop charts, too. It shot up the singles chart, peaking at number two. Sylvester's biggest hit, Mighty Real, had peaked at the number eight position. Paul Jabbar gave Martha and Isora a new name for their act. And when It's Raining Men became a huge hit, they left behind two tons of fun. <laughs> I mean, it was time. And officially became The Weather Girls. Sylvester was watching it all unfold back in San Francisco. So by that time, we were on the East Coast working more and more. And, you know, we would talk from time to time. I wasn't doing any more of the sessions and things, but we would talk every now and then. He would kid me sometimes. You just left me back here in San Francisco. I said, well, look, <laughs> we had to do something. In January 1984, Radio host Donald Christopher Jones interviewed Sylvester on San Francisco's KPOO. Last night, Martha and Azora were on this program. I thought that maybe even during the course of the interview, they would talk about you and do you all still deal with each other? Oh, yeah. Martha and I see each other. Like We've always um, remained very close. A lot of times it's been because of outside influences that we haven't seen each other or had a working relationship. But as far as our personal relationship, we've always got along well. Stephen Winter. It's a push-pull here. He wasn't completely like, I hate you because you're now a star in your own right. But he was like, I love you, but I'm lonely. And I'm scared. I don't know what I'm going to do without you two around. We were sisters together. And now I'm alone. 
Now he was left with managers he knew he couldn't trust, a label that kept trying to change him, and no one he could turn to for creative collaboration, at a time when he needed it most. At the start of the 1980s, Sylvester was at another crossroads. Two tons were gone. The sound that had made him famous wasn't trendy anymore. He made two more albums for Fantasy Records, but the tensions with the label, and with Harvey Fuqua and Nancy Pitts, had reached a point where Sylvester just wanted out. But I was there for, what, three years, and it was just time to move on. I didn't know where I was going or what I was going to do, but I didn't really care. It didn't really matter to me. So now Sylvester was an artist without a record deal. Nobody wanted me at that time, so I'm sure if I had gone out looking for a deal, I could have gotten, sure gotten one. But I didn't even look. That's when he ran into his friend, Marty Blackman. I was at the Ibima discotheque, Small World, and Sylvester was there, and we bumped into each other, and he goes, Honey child, I got off a of fantasy today. And I go, well, congratulations. Marty had worked in promotion at Fantasy before being laid off a casualty of the late 70s record industry slump, when stores were sending back boxes of unsold records and labels were downsizing and cutting promotional budgets. Marty and Sylvester's old keyboardist, Patrick Cowley, had just started working together. Patrick had come to me and said, what do we do, Marty? It's like, I've spent all my money, what am I going to do? And he played me all this stuff, and I go, well, why don't we just do a high-energy disco record? What have we got to lose? You've got the equipment, let's do it, and we'll try to sell it to someone. So this energy record um, turned into Menergy. And that was Cowley's first release. Purple Disco Machine is a German DJ and producer who has sampled Sylvester in his music and did a popular remix of Patrick Cowley's Menergy. Patrick Colley is, I think, the most underrated guy. He was just a genius. So for me, it was like one of the legends who started this whole disco thing. Manage is one of my all-time favorites, especially the intro is so amazing. It was the perfect symbiosis of this organic disco sound from the late 70s, and they were the first guys who introduced me into the synthesizer mid-80s electro-funk sound. And we couldn't sell it. We tried everyone. And finally, a couple hippies in the Haight-Ashbury put the record out and it went number one. And Sylvester was like, whoa. All of a sudden, Patrick was played more in the discotheques than Sylvester was. With the success of Menergy, Marty and Patrick decided to start their own label. They called it Megatone Records. They ran the label out of Marty's house. Patrick was the talent and Marty was the numbers guy. We had been working on an album for an artist in L.A. All these songs were recorded and ready to go, except the contract negotiations fell apart over a $5,000 clause for this beaded gown she wanted for the cover. And Sylvester came into the house that day, and I'm like, I'm so like, you know, and he just goes, what is wrong with you, queen? And I'm like, she wants this $5,000 gown, and, 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 and I'm ready to tell her to take a walk and like listen to the stuff we got ready to go. If anybody could understand a fight over expensive gowns and album covers, it was Sylvester. But with Fantasy Records and Harvey and Nancy out of the picture, Sylvester was ready to reconnect with his collaborator, Patrick Cowley. He needed a label, and he liked the songs, and so he began working with Megatone. Simultaneously, Patrick Cowley was in University Hospital in intensive care. 
So over the course of the next day or two or three, Sylvester came to see Cowley at the hospital. Just as they had reconnected, Patrick suddenly got very sick. He was in his early 30s. And in those course of a few days, Patrick had really gone downhill. And the doctors were saying, well, you know, you better call the parents and get them out here. There wasn't a name yet for this mysterious illness. He had been coming to see Patrick and reading him stuff from the Bible, and he was, like, really concerned about Patrick's health. And Sylvester got off the elevator, and I said, Sylvester, this could be the end. And Sylvester said, you know, come on, Patrick, let's do a record. And the next day, Patrick, like, turned the corner and was out of the hospital within about a week. So Sylvester would come and pick up Patrick on his moped and literally carry Patrick up three flights of stairs. We'd have these meetings, and they'd carry him down and put him on the moped, and they'd, they'd go off to the studio. Stephen Winter. It was Sylvester who went to Patrick in his hospital room, and he says to, something to the effect of, Patrick, I don't care. You have to try harder. You have to get up. You've got to get better, because we've got music to make. Both Sylvester and Patrick must have known that this was no ordinary session. James Weir came in to play guitar and synth on the track. And then Sylvester brought in these lyrics, going, well, do you like these? He brought in the powerhouse vocalists. You know, Jeannie came in and Martha, and all of a sudden the background parts of this album were laid down, and the lead vocals were laid down. Out came Do You Want to Funk? Background singer Jeannie Tracy had been working with Sylvester since the Opera House show. She'd become a friend and collaborator. I wrote, Lordy, let me funk. Oh, let me funk. And he turned to me and said, Girl, you wrote that? I said, yeah, I wrote that. So he goes back to Patrick Cowley and says, I'm going to put these words in it. I said, you owe me. <laughs> DJ Nikki Siano. I mean, obviously, they had a symbiotic relationship because you don't create great music with someone you hate. It just doesn't work well. I know that for a fact. <laughs> Do You Want a Funk epitomized the genre that Sylvester and Patrick Cowley had invented. High energy, synth-driven, aggressively up-tempo dance pop. Patti LaBelle. If you put that song on, I'll jump 24-7. Uh -huh. I mean, that's like one of my favorite songs. Bob the Drag Queen. I also really like, um, do you want a funk? Let me show you how. If you want a funk, I can. You know, that's a, that's a really great one. Um, I just love when he goes, ow! Oh! <laughs> Stephen Winter. Do you want a funk? Is one of the most propulsive, sexy, optimistic dance records of the era, of any era. And what's even more remarkable about this collaboration is that none of the agony that Patrick had been through is detectable in the record. It's not there thematically, it's not there musically. It's all about this incredible sexual, glorious experience. That record did what no one expected it to do. Again, Marty Blackman. 
we thought it'd be a great record, but I don't think radio's going to play it, and who knows. Um, the record came out in July of 1982, and it went number one here and number one in Germany, and it's like all across the world. It was Cali and Sylvester were the rage. Do You Want a Funk's high energy became the sonic DNA that influenced generations of music to come. The Italian disco of the 80s and 90s to Lady Gaga in the 2000s. I'm a fan of Sylvester's music from this era. You may have picked up on that. I'm also a musician myself and have dabbled as a band leader. I'm happy to report that Do You Want a Funk works for audiences today, just like it did in 1982. In fact, here's a recording of my band, Company Freak, playing it at Joe's Pub in downtown New York just a few years ago. Sylvester, do you like Sylvester? Yeah. Now I know it's Joe's Pub and you gotta sit down, but it's a dance party, right? So we're here to dance. Y'all heard the man. I need somebody to get their ass out of the seat right about now. Do You Want a Funk went to number four on the dance charts and crossed over to the pop charts all around the world, from Norway to Australia. The next year, it was featured on a Jane Fonda record that was produced along with her workout tapes. I met a woman on a flight once, coming home from New York, and she knew it was me, and came up and said, oh, I just have to come up and hope I'm not disturbing you. Oh, and she was so excited. She says, oh, honey, we can't <laughs> robicize without you. Do You Want a Funk was featured on Sylvester's first studio album for Megatone, All I Need. In my opinion, All I Need is the most accomplished studio album Sylvester ever released. Every song is phenomenally written, the arrangements are grandiose and sophisticated, so much attention to detail and to form. It moves from the electro-funk of the title track, <laughs> by the way, the best track Sylvester ever recorded in his baritone voice, to the aggressive dance rock of Hard Up, to powerhouse 80s aerobic workouts like Be With You and Don't Stop. When Patrick got really sick, it was very early. It was 1981. San Francisco DJ, Chrissy Shively. The term AIDS wasn't coined yet. There weren't any celebrities with it. The CDC still thought you could get it from like poppers or ecstasy or handshakes. They had no idea. NBC's Tom Brokaw did some of the earliest reporting about this disease in 1982. You can hear how little anyone understands. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Activist Larry Kramer appeared on the syndicated talk show Donahue that November. We're two years into this illness now, and uh, I'm, I'd venture to say that most of your audience still hasn't heard about it. I have 17 friends who have died, but the total cases is now over 700 cases, almost 300 dead. The country hasn't known about it. It's hard getting media attention about it. It's hard getting the New York Times to write about it. It's hard getting the government to finance any research into it. Saxophonist Mark Baum was shocked to see his former bandmate Patrick's decline. He had Megatone records going, and he called me up for a session. And I, I hadn't seen him. He, he looked so terrible. He was so physically fit and robust always. He was at the gym, and he wore tight little skinny t-shirts, little tight shorts, and um, he was already far down the line. I mean, just a ghost of himself. I, I burst into tears. I said, you know, I said, what's wrong? He said, I'm dying of AIDS, and it was so sad. For all his importance to the history of dance music, there are no known recorded interviews with Patrick Cowley out there. Much of what has been preserved comes from Josh Cheon, 
a San Francisco DJ who sought out lost Patrick Cowley music, including his porn soundtracks, and reissued them through his label, Dark Entries. A lot of the music had never been released before. After Josh put it out, people started getting in touch with him. All of his friends and family would just email me and say, hey, I have this Patrick Cowley thing, or I have this tape, or I have these photos, or I have his journals. In the journal, he mentions about specifically making music for these cruise bars where guys would go have sex. You know, tonight I'm in the back room playing the music and watching guys have sex to my music. It's such a thrill. But now, largely confined to the hospital, he was working on a very different project. DJ Chrissy Shively. At the same time that Patrick Cowley was working on Do You Want to Funk with Sylvester, he was working on a solo album called Mind Warp, which on its surface is kind of sci-fi space disco, but he realizes he's dying from this mystery illness, and he's writing a record to come to terms with it. Patrick was able to attend the release party for Sylvester's new album, but it was a heartbreaking night for those who loved him, like his sister, Madonna Cowley Stairs. He was in a wheelchair, and he wanted to be there. He was sitting, watching all the people dancing to his music. I honestly think that he fought to stay alive to see that night. And then I remember the next day, he just seemed to withdraw. Like, like, well, it's over. That was what I was waiting for. On November 12th, 1982, Sylvester was performing in London when he got the news that Patrick had died. Marty Blackman. Sylvester was a wreck when Patrick died. The Patrick Kelly Memorial Service, Sylvester sang and the girls sang and it was so sad. And Sylvester, in the middle of whatever it was he was singing, just lost it and started crying and ran off the stage and was very dramatic. It was the first person we'd known that had died of AIDS. The early 1980s were the beginning of incredibly dark times in San Francisco's Castro District. But Sylvester and Patrick Cowley's high-energy sound was light and wonder. All those heart-pumping, vitalizing dance floor beats were the soundtrack to gay fulfillment and ecstasy. They were affirming life at a time in which the community needed it most. Because some of the hardest times in the Castro and beyond were about to come. Coming up next on Sound Barrier, Sylvester. I've been in love probably twice. Love? I mean, truly, deeply, utterly in love. Faith? And she always told me that God loves you. He won't leave you. Never, ever. And money. Sylvester would spend, like, wild. I mean, it was insane. Well, Sylvester used shopping as therapy. He felt it was part of his job. It's a star's job to appear like a star. That's next time on Sound Barrier. Sound Barrier is a Spotify original podcast from Best Case Studios. It was hosted by me, Jason King, and written by me, Adam Pincus, Brent Katz, and Stephen Winter. Brent Katz is senior producer. Ann Karkeet is our producer. Associate producers are Ashley Warren and Ali Gallo. 
Josh Gamson is consulting producer. Co-producers are Louis Spiegler, Christian D. Bruin, and Tim Smith. This episode was edited by Adrian Lilly, with assistance from James Hansen, and mixed and mastered by Dean White. Paul Dallas is our archival producer, with help from Katie Heiserman. Music is by Gautam Schrickeson, Sam Retzer, and Roger Neal, with additional music from Brent Katz, Blue Dot Sessions, and Five Alarm. Music supervision by Joel C. High and Sammy Posner, with help from Ricky Holman. Executive producers are me, Jason King, Adam Pincus for Best Case Studios, and Stephen Ames Brown for The Sylvester Estate. Corinne Gilliard is executive producer for Spotify. Special thanks to Harry Weinger, Shirley Ramos, Brian Smith, Linda Cohen, Galen Mullins, Kevin Pham, Baron Farmer, Gina Delvac, and Ilana Myers. Find and follow Sound Barrier only on Spotify.